Good morning, church. It's great to be with you all this morning. Um, I invite you to open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, my name is Sean. I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. Um, if you're a guest with us this morning, we're so glad that you are here with us. So glad that you've joined us. Malachi chapter 2. This is our fourth week in the Malachi series, and I'm going to read our text today from Malachi chapter 2. So please follow along as I begin reading in verse 17. There are six prophetic disputation speeches in the book of Malachi, and this is our fourth one here today. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them. Or else where is the God of justice? See, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. I will come to you in judgment and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. Let's pray and ask for God's help here. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to see ourselves and you more clearly from this text. For you are good and your word is true. In Jesus' name, amen. In a few short weeks, we'll be closing the book on another football season with baseball right around the corner. And I found for myself that the older I get, the more and more I like baseball. I'm not sure why that is, but that is the case. And there's a term in baseball called the cycle or hitting for the cycle. And what this means is a a batter in a game, a player in the game, during one game, gets a hit, at least four different hits, and they have to be a single, a double, a triple, and a home run. They don't have to be in that order, but all those four hits need to take place. Uh, Last year, this feet, the cycle, it only happened uh, five times in the major leagues, and last year, four times the year before that. And we're looking at a different type of cycle here in the book of Malachi, different type of pattern, as we have our, our fourth disputation here this morning. It's our fourth cycle around with Malachi. It, it, it resembles some of the cycle that we see in the book of Judges, right? The same pattern happening over and over and over again. And here are the four parts of this pattern here in Malachi. First, there is an assertion 
made by the prophet. Second, there is questioning by Israel, by God's people. Third, there is a response to the questioning. And fourth, there are the implications. This is a, a weighty text this morning. The book of Malachi is a, is a heavy book, a, a, a weighty book, and this text is no different. So here's kind of the main, the main idea of our text today. I put this in your notes there. God is wearied from the charges of his people claiming that he is not just. God announces to send two messengers, one to prepare the way, and the other who is the Lord of the covenant to purify God's people and to destroy those who do not fear him. So let's look at our text further now. Look at verse 17. Right at the beginning, we have the assertion, right? Part one of the pattern. The assertion, you have wearied the Lord with your words. The word wearied here is getting at this idea of an ongoing burden. And we know that God does not get tired. God does not get wearied. But from our human voice, this is a way of saying that their endless complaints and charges against God are tiresome, right? Picture maybe a, a, a faucet maybe at your house that's got this leak and got this slow drip and it's just drip after drip after drip. Right? Notice also in this passage that even though it is their words that have wearied the Lord, it's their hearts behind the words that ultimately will be addressed. This is in your notes. Words have a way of revealing what is going on inside of our hearts. Right, this is true. Words, words don't just come up out of nowhere. Right? Jesus says that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And maybe take a pause even now just to think about our own words this week. Right? Were they used for building others up? Were they used for encouraging others? Were they used for making much of God? Or were there times this week where our words were used to grumble, to belittle, deceive, to tear down? And so after the assertion, the questioning begins, look at the text. How have we wearied him? And where is the God of justice? I think it's difficult to often read tone in a text, but these two questions, they strike me. It's almost as if God is the one who is on trial here, right? The one who has made mistakes and needs to give an account. It's like the creator and the creature have swapped places. And we'll see this flip back around shortly in the coming verses, but to be clear, God has never wronged anyone. He never wrongs anyone. Let's look at the first question. The fact that they ask how, right, how have we wearied him, suggests that perhaps that they didn't know how they wearied him. I think this is a good reminder that sometimes it's the sin that we can't see that is often extremely dangerous for us. I lived in, in Louisville, Kentucky for six years when I was going to seminary, and one year, uh, a friend of mine was able to secure us 
some box seats to the Kentucky Derby. Uh, we were very excited to go right there on the track. And if you've ever seen horse racing before, you'll notice that the horses have these black little boxes that tend to go over their eyes, right? It's to help them see straight ahead and not see on the side for distraction. And church, we can oftentimes get this type of tunnel vision, right? Where we're kind of looking straight ahead and we can often miss some of the things on the side. We can lose sight of the sin that's on the periphery. And that this is one reason why, why we need each other, right? We need one another to speak into our lives. One of the things that I often tell new members at our church as I meet with them is this. I tell them often, get to know others and let yourself also be known. Both of those, hugely important. And this is important, right? It takes time. This takes intentionality. It takes effort. It takes more than just coming to Sunday morning worship and then checking out the rest of the week, right? We need each other, right? We look through the pages of the New Testament. There's no idea, there's no category of this Lone Ranger Christianity. We won't find that anywhere in the Bible, right? So we should not neglect this grace of God's gift in his church, I, I love our church covenant here at Brook Hills. I find it so helpful, encouraging. So if our, if our statement of faith is what we believe as members of the church of Brook Hills, then our church covenant is how we want to live together as members of the church of Brook Hills. And if you're a member here at the church, you've, you've signed up for this, right? This is your, the church covenant is our job description, so to speak. I love this line from it that kind of speaks to what we're talking about this morning. This line from our church covenant says, we will humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction from one another. The commitment that we have as members towards one another allows for this type of relationship. As members, we're, we're trying to lock arms. We're seeking to lock arms together helping one another cross the finish line of faith together. And for many of us, these relationships kind of naturally take place maybe in our small groups. Our small groups provide a great context for us to live out the one another's together. So let's cultivate the kind of relationships. Let's cultivate the kind of relationships where correction is invited and received as an act of love. At the end of verse 17, we see the second question. Where is the God of justice? So here are God's people completely turning from him and sinning in endless ways, as we see in the chapters before. They're now calling out to God to act and bring justice. In some ways, this is a bit ironic, right? A bit, a bit strange. You know, think of it this way. Think of a man who maybe is walking around here in town on a given day, and he, on this day, maybe shares a hundred different lies. He gathers that night for worship with God's people, and one of the things on his agenda is that he demands punishment and reckoning be had for all the liars that are out there. Wouldn't that be odd? 
Wouldn't that be strange? That strike you as strange? Fast forward to the New Testament, right? We see this kind of behavior, this kind of hypocrisy with the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? These were the religious rulers, the the high society of the day. Commentator Douglas Stewart adds, would the people of a nation as corrupt as Malachi has described it in the second and third disputations would they really be looking for justice in the fourth disputation? The answer is absolutely. And that is because sinners are invariably inconsistent. The thief is always outraged when someone steals from him. The liar is deeply offended when someone lies to her. But friends, aren't, aren't we like this too at times? Right, the late... Jerry Bridges has a fantastic book called Respectable Sins. And in this book, he he lists off various sins that we will simply often sweep under the rug as if they don't matter, as if they are respectable. And see if any of these maybe land on you this morning. These land in your ballpark, right? Anger, selfishness. Covetousness, impatience, jealousy, lust, discontentment, right? Any of these hitting, hitting home on us this week, right? And dealing with sin, it should never start with those people out there, right? It should always start with, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. Have mercy on me. Please forgive me. We should be like the psalmist when he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the type of posture that that we want to have towards sin. But I think another angle of this verse here is to, to press the point of the question, where is God when evil happens? Does he care? This is in your notes. If he he doesn't act, how can he be just? Perhaps these are questions that you have wrestled with in your own life. It's from these questions that we get a response. God answers their frustrations. Look at verse 1 in chapter 3. The response, God announces that he will send his two messengers. So who are these guys, right? These two messengers. I'm pretty sure it's not FedEx and UPS here, right? And while the name Malachi also means my messenger, he is not the one of the two, right? It's not Malachi being sent to prepare the way, to clear the way. I believe this first messenger is a reference to John the Baptist, right? He will be the one who prepares the way of the Lord 400 years after this text. I think the New Testament helps confirm this, helps makes this more clear for us. In Mark's gospel, he quotes Isaiah, very similar language here. So see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. So this is in Mark's gospel speaking to that. So John the Baptist prepared the way by helping people live in expectation of the coming Messiah, of the coming Christ. He preached messages of repentance 
and called for people to prepare their hearts to receive the Christ. The, the second messenger, right, if you look in our text, the one you seek, the one you delight in, will come to his temple. Again, I think we can understand who this is by reading the rest of our Bibles. Where is the God of justice? God answers, I'm sending the God-man. Right? This is Jesus, the Christ, the Lord of the covenant. This covenant language points us back to Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah 31, where God promises a new covenant with his people, one in which he will grant a new heart and give the spirit to indwell all those who are his. This new covenant is ushered in by the death of the Lord of the covenant, right? The death of Jesus on the cross. Why does God wait 400 years to send these messengers? Well, God's timetable is often different than ours, isn't it? I think this is a good reminder that sometimes we need to wait on the Lord to answer and to act. But be encouraged that God always keeps his promises, every single one of them. He did send the messengers in John the Baptist, the forerunner, and Jesus, the God-man and Messiah. God is trustworthy. Throughout the pages of Scripture, we see God making promises and keeping promises over and over again. This is good news for us, right? He keeps his word. In this broken world, pain is real. Loss is real. Suffering is real. Injustice is real. But so is the God who loves you and who cares for you. Right, let's, let's continue to remind each other of this truth. So God's answer to his people as they doubt his justice is to send these two messengers. And here is where this passage gives us a bit of a curveball to stick with our baseball theme. Right, we have in our text what is called a, a dual fulfillment. A dual fulfillment. And we see these throughout the Bible. This is where there is both a a short-term and a long-term fulfillment. It's as if Malachi is looking at a mountain range and he sees the near mountains and the far mountains as one range. When he looks at the mountains, he sees them both just squished together. God did not reveal to him how much time was going to take place between the near mountains and the far mountains. But on this side of the cross, we can see a bit of the distinction. All right, so what, so what, does, this, what does this mean? Well, here in Malachi, there are two messengers. This is in your notes. There's two messengers, and there are also two comings. Two comings. So verse 1 in chapter 3 is the first coming of Christ. Verses 2 through 5 speak to his second coming. And in both comings, God answers clearly the question of his justice with a resounding yes. Here is justice. Perhaps the most clear passage on this in the New Testament is Romans chapter 3. So I invite you to turn there, Romans chapter 3 in your Bibles. I think we'll also put this on the screen behind me. 
Romans chapter 3, Paul has just spoken in Romans chapter 1 and 2 that all are sinners, that no one is righteous, no one is good, no one seeks after God. Everyone has disobeyed God's law. And it leaves the question with, well, then how can someone be right with God? How can someone be saved? I'll pick up reading in in verse 23 of Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. There's that messenger, Lord of the covenant, coming forward. Put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Is God just? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So why did God put Jesus forward? Why did God send him as the messenger of the covenant as we see in our verses in Malachi? I think one answer and a correct one, would be to say, to make a way of salvation for all those who trust in Jesus. Right? To make a way for us to be right with God. But the second part of this text in Romans gives a little bit of a different type of answer. Look at the end of verses 25 through 26. Right? Paul writes, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So do you see Paul's answer here? God puts Jesus forward. God sent Jesus to the cross to show his righteousness, to show that he is just, to show that he is holy, that, to show that he does not simply sweep sin under the rug. He deals with it. Or do you see the God-centeredness of God in this text? This text says the reason why God put Jesus forward was to show that his holiness is a big deal, to show that he is just. Let's look at our final movement here in our cycle, our cycle of Malachi. We're, we're rounding third base here. We're headed towards home. In verses two through five, we see the second coming, and we also see the implications there. It's the implications, this is in your notes. There will be purification for God's people. There will be destruction for those who do not fear him. In 2003, the Siberian taiga fires in Russia wiped out 55 million acres of forest land in one fire. And this is, this is recorded as the, the largest uh, forest fire in history. And to give just a bit of a comparison, right here in the U.S., there are between 5 and 10 million acres of forest fire that's burned pretty much every year with countless number of fires. And as we know, fires can be extremely dangerous and destructive. 
but fires can also be really helpful and beneficial. Right? Think of some of the ways that fire benefits us. Right? They can help keep us warm. They can help boil water, give us warm water in our homes. Perhaps my favorite benefit of fires can help us smoke our favorite meats to eat. And this refining fire in verses two through three is a good fire. It's a good fire, although likely uncomfortable. It's a cleansing fire for God's people, a necessary fire to purify God's people, to wing them, pull them away from their idols and bring them back to right relationship and worship with God. Remember that God has no rivals. God has no rivals. He will continue to act to secure the throne of our hearts. And isn't he good to do this? He will not share his glory with another. There is no one like him. And notice in our text here that it is after the refining when they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. After the refining. So isn't this true in our own lives, right? After there is a valley of suffering, of difficulty, of trial, of loss, we often cling to the Lord a bit more. We, we often see him more clearly and trust him more. Our hearts are more set on God in our worship. And that's his aim. Right? The refining fire is a work of God's grace now, in our lives now, and will be also when Jesus returns. So to answer the question, we know that God is just because he sent his son and he is coming again. And this is the hope of the Christian. Titus 2.13, the blessed hope of his coming, that God will make all things new, that he will refine us, that we will be with him forever as his people. And this is good news. But verse 5 has a different word for those who are not trusting in him, those who do not fear God. Look at verse 5 in Malachi Chapter 3, God says, I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. Notice that there are no offerings after this judgment. All right, this is contrasted sharply with the refiner's fire that we just looked at. Right, the fire here is a consuming fire. It's a destroying fire. Notice also four times in this verse, verse 5, we see the word against. This is the posture, right? On the day of judgment, God will not be casual with those who do not trust him, those who do not fear him. He is against them. 
The writer of Hebrews says that it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Friends, there will be a day of judgment for every single person on this planet, every single person sitting here today. The question for us is will we run to Christ and cling to him by faith so that our judgment is a refining fire, ultimately born by Jesus' death on the cross? Or will you choose the wide path of worldly wisdom, putting false reliance on your good works and face the consuming fire? Let me plead with you to look to Jesus. Right? Look to Jesus. As Richard Sibbs rightly said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. He is our only hope in the judgment to come. In verse 5, Malachi also lays out great injustice and the mistreatment of people created in God's image. These friends are, are serious crimes here in our text. We're in the middle of our too strong emphasis here at our church, where we've been looking at what the church is and what the church does through the book of Acts. But here in Malachi, the book of Malachi that we've been walking through these past few weeks, we see the antithesis for the people of God. Right on this side of the cross, the church is to be the place for the oppressed, the widow, the fatherless, because we have a hope and a savior that the world cannot match. And even though this book is not in the church age, it's still addressing the people of God. Right, the book of Malachi puts a mirror in front of each one of us and in front of our church. It shows us how we should not think, how we should not behave. And it makes us evaluate where we stand with God. Are we walking in his ways? Are we trusting him or are we not? In his commentary on Malachi, Pastor Mark Dever writes this, I found this helpful. He says, if, if you are a Christian, learn from Malachi that your worship of God involves the way you treat others. Adultery is a sin against either your spouse or your future spouse. Perjury is a sin against the person you lie about and the person you lie to. Defrauding the people who work for you of their rightful wages is not just a legal matter, it's a spiritual matter. Oppressing the vulnerable who have no power to protect themselves is also a sin. If you think you worship God because you attend church and sing hymns while your life is characterized by unrepentant participation in such sins, you are fooling yourself. You are not worshiping God. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. Sincerity alone is not the point. As the Apostle John said, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who has not seen, he has not seen, uh, for, uh, for anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Our horizontal relationships with one another testify either for or against the reality of our vertical relationship with God. Friends, how we treat people really matters. It really matters. As another minor prophet said, let us act justly, let us love mercy, and let us walk humbly with our God. 
So just a few kind of closing thoughts as we wrap up here. For those who have experienced injustice in this life, God sees you. God cares. God will act. This is the message of the people of Israel during Malachi's time, and it's a message for us here today. It's not wrong to ask these questions. Where is God? Or where is justice? It's not wrong to ask these questions. We see this throughout the Bible, especially in the Psalms. But what we often see in the Psalms following these questions is a reminder, a resolve to continue to trust, to continue to hope in God, for he is good. Right? This is the way. Life, life is often a mixture of terrible sufferings and great joys. They're often mixed together in between. And perhaps you are feeling these diverse realities even this morning. Right? Do not lose heart. God is still on his throne. Right? Let us commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. Remember that Jesus also faced great injustice. The most unjust thing in the history of the world was the crucifixion of the perfect son of God. And we can look to Jesus who is the perfect and just king and we can find our rest in him. And let's, let's be careful not to confuse our sense of justice with what we see on television or in the movies. Right? God's justice is it's always perfectly measured because he is perfect. God's justice is, is always perfectly on time because he is perfect. And sometimes when it's hard for us to see or understand, we can trust God because he is perfect. He is trustworthy. And for, for all of us here in the room, right, this is, a, this is a sobering text. This is a hard text. This book is a sobering book. Malachi is putting... He's putting the mirror in front of each one of us so that we can evaluate where our hearts are at. Are there areas in our lives, as we think about it this morning, are there areas in our lives that, that need change? Right? We want to let the word wash over us this morning like a refining fire. Let it do its work. The late... Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle often spoke of six vital certainties, and I wanted to put them in front of you this morning. I found these helpful, uh, clear, and concise. Number one, life is short and uncertain. Two, death is sure. Three, judgment is inevitable. Four, sin is exceeding sinful. Five, hell is a dreadful reality. And six, Christ alone can save you. Church, by, by grace-enabled effort, let's, let's strive to kill off sin. Let's help one another to do so. And let's do so as we cling to Jesus together. Right? He is our perfect substitute who stands in our place.
He is our faithful shepherd, and he is a good and just king. 